This is the Moral Science Podcast, and I'm your host, Amber Cazell. In this series, I get to interview experts in my favorite subject, the scientific study of human morality, virtues and vices, evolution of morals, the judgment action gap, character development, the philosophy of morality, transcendent experiences, researchers' moral biases, cultural values, plus the obligatory trolley dilemma. We are going to talk about it all. Dr. Sarah Schnitker is a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Baylor University, where she directs the Science of Virtues Lab. She previously researched as an associate professor in the Thrive Center for Human Development at Fuller Theological Seminary. As a principal investigator, Sarah has secured more than $3.5 million in research funding through the John Templeton Foundation for a number of projects with various aims, including understanding gratitude towards God and fleshing out a foundation for the scientific study of patience. In this podcast, we discuss her work which focuses on the role of religiosity as a fertile context in which virtue and character develop in adolescence. We're going to be discussing a topic that really a lot of Sarah's um, research kind of centers around or touches upon in one way or another, but a particular paper that I read of hers and that we'll be discussing and kind of working from uh, is called Religion, Spirituality, and Thriving, Transcendent Narrative, Virtue, and Telos. And it's in the Journal of Research on Adolescence, published with Pam King and Benjamin Holtberg in 2019. Um, So in this paper, Sarah, you're, you're really making the argument that religion and spirituality is one context in which character and virtue might develop. And um, I want to take some time to unpack, just as you do in the paper, what is meant by virtue and character and flourishing, and then diving into religion and spirituality. And um, in this paper, you even have a section, it's called Starting at the End, Telos and Thriving. And I thought that that was great and I really appreciated it. So could you like situate for me um, what you mean by thriving in the first place? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, and I really do want to acknowledge my collaborators on this paper, Pam King and Ben Holtberg. Um, this really was a group effort. Um, and actually this paper came out of many years of conversations mm. um, coming up from kind of different disciplinary backgrounds and figure out what, what's, what do we really need to understand and what's missing um, right now. Um, right. And I think especially Pam King has always argued that if we think about psychology and especially developmental psychology, um, we need to have a bigger goal than just the absence of mental illness or even just people's personal happiness that we want to be thinking about what is it to have a thriving person, someone who's really flourishing in life and really constructing that not at the individual level, but also thinking about groups of people that, it's not just my own happiness or my own well-being, but it's that I'm fitting into this developmental system. Mm. Um, the systems can be at many different levels. So um, a family system, a school, uh, a classroom, broader society. Um, and that if 
we want to look at someone and say they're thriving, it's that they're actually working to um, improve their context and improve the lives of other people as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, I think so often in our studies, we're just looking at what happens and aren't considering um, what should happen. Um, now, it's tricky, right? Because as scientists, we aren't trying to make normative judgments about ideal states of the world. Um, and yet, I think we have those implicitly as researchers of what we think is the ideal kind of end goal um, for a human life. And so just trying to articulate what that means, um, but articulating that it needs to be the person and their context um, and that you can't separate the two when you're thinking about how you create a good society and a good person. Um, they're very much together <laughs> and connected to each other. Yeah, I really found it insightful. There's there's a little section in the paper. I'll just read it. Um, I really enjoyed it. It says, we adopt a contextualized approach and define telos as a process that perpetuates a growing goodness of fit between persons and their contexts. Building upon developmental science, we emphasize that human development occurs through reciprocal person context interactions through which we optimize their chance, through which people optimize their chances of actualizing their purposes, resulting in different developmental paths across the lifespan. I really, I have never heard someone conceptualize flourishing as a a goodness of, as a goodness of fit. And um, I found that, I found that insightful. I found that really insightful. (laughs) Like, I just wonder if you could expand upon that and say more of what you're thinking. When I see goodness of fit, I instantly start to think about statistics, but I actually found that to be sort of helpful. You know, and I think it's, right, developmental psychologists think about this a little bit better than social and personality psychologists. Um, But I think, right, it's about do I fit well in this environment? And does this, do I benefit this environment? And I think, you know, sometimes when you look at someone and say they're, you can look at them and say, oh, they are languishing. They're not doing that well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think so often in Western culture, it, we want to blame the individual <laughs> and say, oh, they need to work harder. They need these virtues. Um, instead of realizing it's also the context that needs intervention and that, is the whole system that might be broken. And if we want to create virtuous people, we actually need to create virtuous context, um, not just think about the one individual, um, but how does the whole group um, work together? And, um, you know, I can even think about in our scientific pursuits as a lab, <laughs> it's not that any one member um, is necessarily virtuous. They are, but it's also that we've created norms and a culture and a context that really helps each person to bring their own strengths and let them shine. Um, and I think that's what we're looking for. And sometimes there's a mismatch, I think, between a, an individual and her context. Um, some people find, oh, you know what? My ideals and meaning system don't align with this particular group. I'm going to choose to go elsewhere. And that's a place I can thrive and experience my own well-being, but also contribute to this group. Um, and I think it, I mean, it's hard though, because it makes it very complicated to do research. 
So um, that's the challenge is you can't make, um, yeah, it's a little trickier. <laughs> so how do you think about, um, I'm thinking of researchers like Rick Schwader and this idea mm-hmm. that, you know, values seem to vary culture to culture. Um, what do you make of that and character in light of inevitable conflicts in value systems as we sort of move about, especially in increasingly um, smaller and smaller worlds digitally, you know? Yeah. It's tough. You know, I, I do take the perspective that our virtues are contextually bound to a certain extent. Um, as a psychologist reading philosophy, <laughs> which is always dangerous, um, right? I really like McIntyre's approach um, that in his book, After Virtue, that talks about um, we really, what virtues we value and what those mean. It does have this local <laughs> um, mm. flavor to it. And I think you know, when I look at Schwetter's work or John's Height's work on moral foundations theory, um, you know, I, I do think there are some universals that tend to emerge, right? We always see um, care and harm as a part of a moral domain. Um, and I think that's from our shared um, evolutionary history or history as the species, right? Where we have brains that tend to produce certain types of <laughs> systems um, and certain types of moralities. And so there is diversity, but there also does seem to be a common core um, across all cultures that we can um, say, yep, this is pretty much virtuous everywhere. So I think, you know, when we're thinking about virtues, one approach we've taken is, um, okay, what's the core that we can always look for? Um, And then especially with some of the intervention work I've done with collaborators, um, we'll actually try to contextualize to a particular context and say, what are the virtues in this context? And before we even start an intervention um, to assess what people care about in that context and how that group um, defines a virtue. So for example, with Ben Holtberg, when he was at USC, Um, University of Southern California and their Performance Science Institute. Um, We were developing some interventions for USC student athletes. Um, Mm -hmm. Started first by asking coaches and athletes, which of these virtues are most important to you? Um, What is virtuous here? Um, Mm -hmm. And design an intervention around that um, rather than assuming we actually knew. Yeah, that's really interesting. So that's actually one of the things on that Virtue Circumplex project, Sarah. Um, mm-hmm. for, for listeners, I've been working on this project for a while now, um, trying to understand the relationship between various virtues to one another and relationship between virtues and vices. And anyway, we um, administered this survey with a bunch of different words that we presumed were virtuous. And... Um, you know, kind of as a testament, I think I'm chalking this up to culture. Maybe, maybe listeners will disagree, but one thing that we found is that when people were rating 
their friends on the virtue on a virt what we were thinking of as a virtue of being um, traditional, like almost like respect for tradition, it was, it was statistically behaving like a vice. Like people were scoring it as though it was a vice. And um, I just thought that that was, as I was reading through your paper, Sarah, it kind of, it kind of made me laugh thinking about what you were saying here, what McIntyre is saying, what Nancy Snow has said about Mm -hmm. just how culturally contextualized some of these things are. Cause I could imagine that maybe in more Eastern cultures, tradition is something that's admired, you know? Definitely. Uh, you know, I even, I think I've been attuned to this issue since I began grad school. So my first year I started studying the virtue of patience, mm-hmm. um, which you'll know very few people study in positive psychology. Mm-hmm. I remember when I started, I had four references and one of them was Charles Darwin on the expression of patience. <laughs> So, and I, I very quickly realized patience um, isn't really considered a virtue by a lot of people in the United States in particular. Um, Interesting. You're allowed to say, oh, I don't have any of that. To be impatient is seen almost as your go-getter and you don't let anyone keep you down and you don't suffer. You beat everything. You're, you've got the best technology, so you don't have to wait. Yeah. Yeah, and time bound, right? Like a lot of these things yep. are so contextualized to certain generations and yep. times. Like um, Blaine Fowers is always fond of reminding me that Aristotle did not think humility was a virtue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, he always gets a chuckle out of that, but it's it's kind of true. And um, I can see that. Like I, I've been also reading this book called The Quest for a Moral Compass. It's like this global history of morality and like ethical thought. It's actually, I mean, shout out to the book. It's actually a great book. Um, I've found it incredibly enlightening to learn about, you know, the history of morality across, I mean, globally. It's great. Mm -hmm. But anyway, same, same thing. You know, you can see how these different virtues arise out of these different ethical traditions that aren't always shared. They're not always yeah. shared. Um, anyway, okay. Was, sorry, was there something you wanted to say? Yeah, I was just going to transition. So I think, you know, this issue is part of the reason we wrote this paper about, should we define virtues a little bit differently than we have in the past? Mm-hmm. Um, and not to say our idea is brand new. We definitely, um, have people who have resonate with the way we're talking about virtue, but it was finding a way to incorporate that the meaning system matters Mm -hmm. (laughs) when defining a virtue is a lot of what motivated us um, to write this piece. Um, Yeah, that makes sense. To give psychological language and to think about it within the personality system. Um, Mm -hmm. A way instead of just being like, oh, it's pluralistic. We can't do anything to say, no, there's, let's actually think about what this looks like inside a person um, and how we need to start studying this um, in a way that allows us to attend to this dimension. Right, right. And so I think like one of the things that you really, um, or at least in the paper, really hit home to me was this idea of, of why uh, transcendent narrative identity or um, 
just, just moral identity or life narrative purpose, why these things are also constitutive of virtue in some way. Um, Mm -hmm. so let's, let's flesh that, that out a little bit more. Um, well, actually, you know what, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's back up and, and first talk about what you mean, because we have been using the word virtue a lot now. We've spoken about yeah. like, okay, well, thriving or flourishing and this goodness of fit and edific- like edification between the self and the context kind of occurs um, as a result of virtue. But what do we actually mean when we're using that word here? Yeah, that's a good, tough question. <laughs> um, so, and I, you know, different psychologists are using it quite differently. Right. Um, and I think it's been an issue ever since positive psychology began. Um, thinking about, well, is virtue just personality traits? Like, what does it mean to have the virtue of patience versus just being really conscientious or agreeable or whatever, right? We've studied these positive human dimensions for a while. Um, and the way we think about virtues, um, which I think aligns well with philosophy's view, um, is that these are not actually traits um, in the way we typically think about personality traits. Um, and instead, they come in at a different level of personality. So um, for those of you who don't think about personality theory all that often um, and just think personality and think big five traits, right? That's, I think, what we most know about. But uh, most theories of personality that are widely um, adopted today, um, so McAdams and Powell's, um, and even Costa and McRae in their more recent updates of personality, um, identify at least three levels of personality. Um, and each of these levels contains unique information um, and interacts with the other levels. So the most basic level is these trait-like attributes. So kind of very stable dispositions, um, what we normally think about and measure when we think about personality. And honestly, a lot of the virtue measures have measured virtues as traits, which I think is problematic. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the second level is what we call characteristic adaptations, um, which is very jargony, of course. (laughs) Mm -hmm. What I think we're trying to describe there is these are in some ways the habits or the schemas or the the typical ways we act in the world. Um, So Cantor, back in 1990, he talked about, you know, traits would be what personality is or what it has. So it's that more basic quality, whereas characteristic adaptations would be what a person does. Mm. Um, So it's more about their activity their engagement with their context. Um, So things like motivations, goals, defense mechanisms, habits, and I put virtues in this category as well. Um, So by being at the level of characteristic adaptations, um, it's more something that's changeable. (laughs) It can be something that you develop. Um, It's less biologically um, bound or not bound, but less kind of determined by genetic predisposition, um, and more something that can be cultivated. Um, and so 
we agree with people like Lapsley and Narvez um, and others that if we're going to take seriously the idea of habitus from Aristotle, um, then we really should be thinking about virtues at this characteristic adaptation level rather than the trait level. Yeah. And then the third level, though, I think is the one that really is interesting, which is the narrative identity um, or the story of the self that each person tells about their life. And the way we construct our life story, the content of it, um, the meaning system that really uh, energizes us, that is a whole nother level of information. Um, and I think that's where we are a little bit unique in our theory of virtue in saying, not only is it having particular types of habits <laughs> that um, lead to thriving and flourishing of relationships and are moral, but you have to have those habits tied to a story that is um, bigger than the self. So we use the term transcendent. Um, you could use the term moral um, that, you know, it's something that's not self-centered, that it's centered on something bigger. Um, and I know that sounds ambiguous because you have this pluralism of what is moral <laughs> and what it, but all the moral systems, it's not just about me. So that's something that's consistent about all of them. Um, it's about the group maybe, or about a deity or about um, purity or about caring for other people, but they all are beyond self. And so I think with thinking about virtues, they need to be these adaptive habits, these characteristic adaptations um, that are used for something beyond the self. Yeah, that's, um, that is really, that is really interesting. So like what, what is the relationship between like transcendence or beyond the self as particularly related to virtue as opposed to, um, I don't know, like vice even like what, what makes it kind of have this special relationship. I'm curious why this level is necessary for virtue. Yeah. Cause I think, well, I think vices you can have without involving the narrative, right? You can just have bad habits. <laughs> so um, let's use the example of patience, a virtue I study a lot. Um, so it's very easy to be impatient. All you have to do is lose your temper <laughs> or get really frustrated, right? And um, it doesn't matter what your reasons are <laughs> for getting frustrated. Um, you're impatient, right? Even if I had, if it's for the sake of another person, um, I still have failed to be patient. Whereas you could have the correct habit. So we could think about an assassin <laughs> who's killing someone for money, um, being very patient, showing the good skills of patience, regulating their emotions, staying calm, keeping their breath calm so they can shoot well. Um, but they have the second condition of doing this for some moral reason, um, to be considered truly patient, um, that needs to be satisfied. And we wouldn't say they're patient. We would say they're just really good at regulating their emotions. Yeah. So the, 
really interesting. And how, so let's, let's shift gears now to um, religion and spirituality as a context for, for virtue development. So I know that Pam King has spoken about this a lot. Was this originally kind of Pam King's thing? It was hers, but I've also kind of early in my work, even as a grad student, was looking at religion and spirituality as well with virtue okay. development. So one of my early studies, um, there's a Bob, uh, Bob Emmons and Justin Barrett had a grant um, from the John Templeton Foundation, and I was the grad student research on it, um, research assistant on it. Um, we were looking at how religious uh, conversions and changes in spirituality as a result of going to religious summer camps affected virtue development across time. Um, from teenagers involved, it's an organization called Young Life. So it's evangelical group and um, just looking about what happens to this about a third of them every summer report some kind of spiritual transformation um, and saying how that changes people, does it, what happens, and um, kind of fascinating work, difficult work. <laughs> I bet. So what, what did you find in that study? No, we found that, um, you know, having the mountaintop experience, so reporting the conversion at camp, didn't affect virtue development as much as continued spiritual growth over time mm. um, after camp. So, um, you know, it was interesting that, yeah, just having this one-off experience doesn't really change your character, um, mm -hmm. but continue to grow spiritually um, that was correlated with those changes in virtue. Um, yeah. So, and that, that sort of makes sense to me. I mean, Mm -hmm. Right. But, and, and plus those like conversion moments are so rare. It just seems yes. like it would be hard to sustain yeah. the momentum of changing. <laughs> but for some people though, I think it really does motivate them to actually engage in the personal reflection over time. They're like, is that emotionally salient experience that is kind of the catalyst for the other kinds of spiritual change? Um, I don't think it's that it does nothing. Um, it's more that then you have to have something else alongside of it. That makes sense. Yeah. It's so, really interesting too with that work, uh, real quick. They, we also found, um, that we could predict who was going to have a conversion at camp. Um, oh, interesting. Was, yes. And it actually goes all the way back to William James and Edward Starbuck and their theories of conversion. Um, wow. Uh, the adolescents who had a lot of conflict amongst their personal goals were more likely to have a conversion at camp. And the adolescents who had um, lower meaning on the personal goals they were pursuing also more likely to have a conversion. Um, but was Interesting, though, and it actually fits with our kind of characteristic adaptation idea is that global measures, like personality trait type measures of meaning, were not predictive. So it was more looking at this characteristic adaptation level of personality about personal goals um, that predicted who would have a conversion. Wow, that's, um, that's super cool. So forgive my ignorance. So 
William James and Starbuck, what what was their theory that kind of undergirded? Yes, sorry. So they said for adolescents, um, a conversion is a very typical experience that helps with identity development in the U.S. especially, um, and probably other primarily religious cultural contexts. So when people have a sense of kind of disintegrated self <laughs> and they don't have a lot of coherence, having mm-hmm. religious conversion or a spiritual transformation, um, it provides this higher order meaning system and goal that then helps to organize the rest of the goal system um, and helps them to have a sense of uh, identity and kind of coherence among things that might otherwise seem to be conflicting. Um, Interesting. So adolescents, did you look into how adolescents who had like conflicting goals, whether their goal contents changed at all, or did they just... We weren't able to. (laughs) We really wanted to. Yeah. Um, But we found it was very difficult to get adolescents to engage our follow-up survey. Um, We had to make that a lot shorter. Um, and doing the whole goals measure. So first they have to list their goals and then rate them. That was just too taxing for that follow-up. Um, What's your hunch? Do you think that... I think they were shifting, but I, I think maybe they were shifting a bit. Um, but I think it also was, maybe they were still pursuing the same goals, but were able to reconceptualize them. So for example, you could imagine an adolescent has a goal to like get really good grades in school and then also has a goal to be a good friend, right? Mm-hmm. So a teenager, like, those aren't necessarily complementary or conflicting, <laughs> but you can imagine how those could be seen as conflicting for a teenager, right? Mm-hmm. To be a friend, I need to spend all my time with my friends and go to this party to get good grades. I need to spend time studying. And so maybe for a teen that's seen as conflicting, but perhaps then like a teenager has a religious conversion and says, ah, I'm supposed to honor God with my work and my relationships. They can see these actually, well, I work hard to honor God. I love people to honor God. So now these are more congruent goals. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If the goals themselves had not changed is what our suspicion is. Um, And based on the other goals research out there and that you can, kind of conceptualize schools at different levels. And it's helpful to have a higher order level um, to make sense of what feels like a conflict. Um, I know I do that in my own life a lot. <laughs> I know my, my academic work, my role as a mentor and researcher, and then my role as a mother. I feel like those two can very easily feel conflicting because um, time is limited. Um, by having a higher order goal, I can connect them and actually see them as enhancing each other. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, yeah, that's interesting. And it makes intuitive sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So let's, let's turn back now to religion and spirituality, like the, the mechanism. So that's, that's one mechanism, mm-hmm. right. By providing these second order, um, mm-hmm narrative identities, I suppose. That's fascinating to me. And I'm wondering if you've done other research looking at how religion and spirituality might 
provide narrative identity or purpose mm-hmm. in some way yep. and then sort of related that to virtue. Yeah. So I think, I mean, and first to speak a bit more conceptually, I think religion in particular, so by that I mean, you can talk about individual spirituality, but a religion or a spirituality that is cohesive and that actually involves other people <laughs> and some traditional practices of some sort, it's kind of a wild context because it has this meaning system that's talked about at least on a weekly basis. <laughs> mm. um, and then it also provides these particular habits in the form of spiritual practices like prayer or giving or volunteer service or, and you do these practices with the people who are also talking to about this um, meaning system. And so it kind of has the one, two punch for virtues and that it gives you actual activities to do that help you build the habits Mm. and actually explicitly will sometimes connect those to the meaning system. Um, and there's not a ton of contexts that do that. There's a lot of great contexts that help build habits. There's meaning systems you can get, but to have the two together is really useful. Um, and so one study that we did um, that gets at this to a certain extent, it's hard, right? Because these are very complex types of things to measure. Mm-hmm. Um, But one really fun study we did was looking at adolescents who were training for half or full marathons (laughs) with an organization called Team World Vision. Um, So, you know, I've often in my career committed to doing um, research in naturalistic settings that have a lot of real world generalizability and then also trying to do similar things in the lab. So this was one of those real world type studies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we did is we measured the adolescents across at four time points across their training experience and then after their race. Um, and it's a really interesting group because they meet each week in teams. Um, it does have explicit religious um, connections, the training group. Um, so it's a Christian organization um, and they explicitly connect running the marathon and all of the training activities um, to a pro-social purpose of providing clean water um, and safe water to young people in Africa and countries. Um, Mm. So they do that. It's kind of this ideal virtue development context because they're helping build habits through actual running and that takes self-control and patience and they're doing fundraising at the same time. And then they're actually giving this narrative um, to the young person about why you're doing this. Um, mm-hmm. One study we had that I think got published this year um, in Journal of Personality, we assessed um, the motivations for running at each of the time points. Um, mm-hmm. So we asked them, why are you doing this? So are you doing this because you want to get physically fit um, and kind of for your own health? Are you doing this to help kind of other people to, for the benefits that are going to be for folks who need clean water? Um, are you doing this for, to grow closer to God or to build your spirituality? Um, and what we found is that um, 
the extent that they had more transcendent motives, so the pro-social or the spiritual motivations, um, they were also more likely to be growing in the virtues of self-control, patience, and generosity. Hmm. Um, and I'm trying to remember exactly um, only, and then the change in generosity, um, you only see that increasing when people had that pro-social motivation also increasing. Um, so we found self-control actually increased pretty well, even if you just had a health and fitness motivation increasing. Mm-hmm. As you, for those more virtuous virtues that really depend on beyond the self motivation, like patience and generosity, um, those beyond the self motivations were what were predictive. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I'm trying to think of what other contexts can kind of pack that one, two punches. You're saying that religion and spirituality seem to be packing. Um, I think you mentioned, and it struck me as, as, um, a good example, like politics and political affiliation Mm -hmm. seems to be big in this way. Yep. I think politics, I think, and you know, the one that I think actually comes sometimes the closest is environmental movements. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think politics sometimes is hard because it doesn't always get to the really ultimate concerns of those deep existential questions of life. I mean, it gets there, but not as far. But I feel like some of the movements for environmentalism, it's about saving the world for millennia ahead of us. And it has this bigger scope of time um, and very specific practices that people adopt and habits. that I think are closer to approximating um, what we see here. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes, you know, and I, right, I talked about this running model. Like I think sports is an interesting example as well. Um, again, when you get on a sports team, there's practices, there's narrative the team develops. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Sports are interesting because those narratives vary quite widely. <laughs> Sometimes it leads to some of the worst behavior um, mm-hmm. as we've seen. So I think it's when you get these intensive communities um, and then the type of narrative that's emerging um, that's yeah. real action. But right, but religion is unique in that it really deals with big, big questions um, very regularly of life and death. Um, which maybe soldiers in a war. Yeah. Um, units, but you, you often find in military units, people bring religion in. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting question. It is. And I, yeah, I was thinking about military as well and thinking mm-hmm. about um, often it seems that people draw a lot of, gosh, I'm not sure what the right word is. I don't want to say flow and I don't know that I want to say purpose, but like it also seems there's a way that bodily movement comes into play mm-hmm. in a lot of these yes. things. Like I'm thinking of, um, you know, like worship sh- services for mm-hmm. religion and spirituality and like 
you know, adolescents and adults, like talking about getting goosebumps or just like being so overcome yeah. by his spirit and, and things like that. Yeah. Um, or like dance and sports, mm-hmm. same kinds of, same kind of thing of like a, bodily movement. Are you aware yes. of any kind of research yes. on this sort of a thing? Yeah. Patty Van Capellen at Duke um, actually is doing quite a bit of research right now, um, the John Templeton grant on um, kind of embodied spirituality and how worship um, and worship postures and prayer postures and all these different things affect um, people's experiences. Um, hmm. really their religious experiences, the self-transcendent emotions they experience and how those might differ um, depending on the type of worship they engage in, right? It's really fascinating stuff. So like if someone kneels for prayer <laughs> versus stands up with their arms open, like how does that affect their view of God and what types of emotions they experience? And um, there's also quite a bit of work out there too on um, group like rhythmic group singing and dance. Um, And I think, right, and what religion does is it not only gives that experience, but it explicitly connects it to this meaning system, Mm -hmm. right? So I think a lot of us, well, maybe not a lot of us, but some of us, (laughs) I mean, when I was younger, especially, um, right, we go to awesome fitness classes at the gym where we have this experience of doing the workout with other people and um, feel that bonding, but it's not connected to something really deep or meaningful. Um, And that's where religion has this leg up, I think, on a lot of other institutions is that it says, ah, and this is part of this big picture thing. Um, And I think, you know, I, I, I don't think we have to have not everyone needs to be part of a traditional religion to get these experiences. Um, but I think it's very important if we care about moral development in a pluralistic society to study what's worked so well <laughs> and what's worked so poorly. Um, as we think about designing interventions um, to help people build, to help build good character, because um, many people are disaffiliating from religion. Um, right. And so, what's being lost and we don't necessarily have to give these um, activities through religion, but if we're going to say thinking about like a secular public school program um, to build character strengths, completely ignoring religion or ignoring the meaning systems of youth, even if they're diverse, <laughs> it's not going to be very effective is my guess. So trying to say, okay, maybe we're not doing this in the context of religion, but what do we need? What are some essential elements that have traditionally been in those contexts and how can we do that? Even if it's a more secularized version. Right. Um, And I'm curious too, if, if you've thought about more mechanisms that, um, you know, really, might make religion and spirituality a good context for virtue development or ways that, or even aspects that religion and spirituality do not contribute to with respect to developing virtue. Yeah. And I think a lot of it, so when it does, like this is that moderation question, um, 
sometimes depends on the variety of religion. <laughs> um, one of the downfalls, I'd say, of religion spirituality tends to be that it's really good at forming group cohesion, um, but it can very much exclude people um, unless it's intentional about watching out for that. Um, and so I think that's something religious groups um, need to watch out for is, okay, we're great at creating cohesion amongst our group, but does that come at the cost of derogating those outside of our group? Um, and I'm not going to be able to think of the reference right now, but I know that there are Venn studies that have shown you can help prevent that effect, but it has to be um, framed within the context of the meaning system of that religion. So I know I'm thinking of a terror management study, um, right? Because we know with terror management theory, death crimes typically lead people to uphold their in-group and start derogating out-groups. And they found that with Christian participants, when they tried to kind of give a little sayings and say, oh, don't do this. You want to be kind to those who are different. If those were framed in a secular manner, they did nothing. <laughs> but if they used Bible verses and phrases from Christianity um, to talk about uh, attending to and taking care of people outside their group, it was actually quite effective at buffering against the outgroup derogation that comes with priming death. Um, so I think there's ways that this can be done. Um, if a religious group actually cares enough to try. <laughs> right. Yeah. I guess I'm wondering, like in the paper, you spoke a lot about, um, you know, religion and spirituality providing rituals and practices mm -hmm. for a, for characteristic adaptations that develop things like self-control. Um, mm -hmm. You also spoke about, transcendent narrative identity, like you're saying, like connecting this to these deeper questions mm -hmm. and these broader issues. Um, like one key aspect of virtue that I didn't feel you directly spoke to was like how religion and spirituality do with respect to cultivating appropriate motivation as like a key mm -hmm. aspect of virtue. And um yeah, like, I just, I wonder, have you thought about that? Have you thought about religion, religion and spiritualities, um, the ways it does or does not appeal to motivation? Like, I'm thinking about, I guess, like, legalism and, and things like that. Yeah, and I think that's, um, it does matter, right, there's, I think, a lot of motivations that can be present, um, that people pick up from their religious context, right? And this, I think, psychoreligion is very early stages um, with the focus on intrinsic versus extrinsic religiosity that Elport even started looking at. Um, mm -hmm. Really shows that this has been a primary concern for researchers since the beginning, that there are lots of reasons people engage in religion, um, and that then affects... <laughs> their moral behaviors as a result, their prejudice, their um, pro-sociality. So it's tough because um, 
right? There's this bi-directional relationship between the person and their religious context. So, um, and I think you can see influence. So certain religious groups are talking about religion in different ways, um, right? So some, even if you look just within Christianity or even just within evangelical Christianity in the U.S., you see such diversity. Um, sometimes it's presented very much as self-help, <laughs> as a way to make your life better. Um, other times it's much more presented as something you engage to please God or to do something for others, right? As you're saying, sometimes it's more legalistic that this is a fear-based thing of avoiding punishments versus approaching something that's good. Right. Um, so I think it's really tough right now. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, one strategy for researching this that I'm excited about um, is one my grad student Juliet Ratchford is working on, which is to use more of these goal-based measures to assess virtue. Um, and you could specifically, so like we could ask people, what are the goals you're working on right now? Um, and we can say, okay, how patient are you as you work on this goal? How much frustration are you experiencing? Opposite. Um, but we could also ask people, what are your motives? Why are you pursuing this goal? Are you doing this because you think you have to, because God's going to punish you if you don't? We could ask, oh, are you doing this because um, you're so grateful for everything you've received in this life? So I think by using, moving beyond trait measures, we're going to be able to start to actually assess these motivations and be able to say something about how religion motivates um, a bit more than we know right now. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and I'm trying to conceptualize, like for me, what's interesting, so I have a Protestant Christian background growing up and mm-hmm. um, like the doctrine of, of grace is theologically interesting to consider mm-hmm. um, with respect to like these motivational components to virtue development I guess I'm thinking, like, I'm just thinking out loud here, but, um, you know, this idea of, of grace as sort of this mechanism of getting rid of motivations that are fear-based or are, Mm -hmm. um, you know, extrinsically motivated, like I'm, I'm behaving well in this life so I get rewards in the next life or that sort of a thing. Mm -hmm. It's theologically interesting to consider this motivational layer in the context of um, virtue requiring good motivation. Uh Uh-huh. And I think, um, and what gets really tricky too, for measure, like for doing studies on these, is because someone might have a theological belief in grace they maintain, um, but do they really carry that through in their day-to-day lives? <laughs> um, right. Like a belief in grace is really counterintuitive to our natural understanding as a species, right? You should not get what you don't deserve, right? We're taught over and over, <laughs> get what you deserve, there's reciprocity, all of our interactions tend to teach us if you're really bad, you don't just get all these amazing things. Um, Right. Consequences. (laughs) Right. And 
Um, and I think it depends, like it's easier for some people who have kind of unconditional positive regard from their parents. It might be easier for them to believe in this kind of grace idea um, and actually not just tout it as a belief, but actually um, kind of more implicitly believe it. Um, but I think for a lot of people, it's, it just doesn't make any sense at an implicit level. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's really hard too because it goes against belief in a just world for a lot of people, right? It's right. well, that's not fair. <laughs> um, so I think that's one of the challenges I've faced when doing psycho religion research and is okay, this is what the person says they believe, but what do they do really ask, like get deep, a little bit deeper what's really going on? And yeah. I think, you know, Chris Sharp um, has done a bit of work on this and who else was on the paper? Bonnie Zoll, um, maybe, and Nick Gibson, they did some work on kind of these like head beliefs and heart beliefs with religion. Because um, it's people, certain religious concepts are just hard for people because they're so counterintuitive to the natural world. Interesting. So is that kind of like explicit versus implicit yeah i think that would be yeah a good way to think about it interesting okay well so in just our last minutes of closing um what else are you kind of working on in this line of work you mentioned that work with juliet on the goals based measures Mm -hmm. um what else are you doing yeah we're also so right this semester we're getting ready to do a study um, that explicitly manipulates motivation or experimentally probably be a better term for engaging in virtue development activities. Um, so we're going to have everyone do practice meditation, um, but we're going to tell some participants that they're doing this um, to help them connect with something bigger than themselves, to grow spiritually, um, to really um, and morally and really provide more of those transcendent motivations and keep that primed as they engage the activity. Um, whereas the other group, we're going to have them do this meditation. And we know from right tons of studies, meditation helps develop good things. Um, we're going to tell them you're doing this so you can improve your academic performance. So you can improve your focus and attention and do better on all of your activities in life. Um, which is not a bad thing, but it doesn't have that transcendent framing. So we want to see if manipulating this um, and providing kind of that motivation that's more transcendent um, changes the effectiveness of a meditation activity. Um, we're going to be giving money as well and seeing if people who are in the transcendent condition actually donate more of their money um, at the end of the study. Very cool. Yeah. Um, very cool. And who's that in yes. collaboration with? Yes, I was just going to say, I'm like, so that is in collaboration with um, one of my students, Emily Williams. And then Juliet Ratchard's also going to be a part of that study. And then we actually have a philosopher, Tim Paul, who's part of the team for that study. Um, and as a philosopher, he's really interested in this motivation um, component of virtue. Um, and Awesome. Is that psychologists have not really attended to this very much. So it's a pretty fun group. 
Yeah, very cool. All right. Well, Sarah, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. And it was really fun to get to learn about this. This is actually the first time we've really spoken about religion and spirituality kind of explicitly in the podcast as a topic. So thank you for introducing us to it. Yes, thank you. It's been fun to chat. Thanks for listening. If you have questions, comments, suggestions, or requests, contact me at www.moralsciencepodcast.com. The Moral Science Podcast is sponsored by listeners like you. If you enjoy the series, please consider leaving a tip at www.patreon.com forward slash moral science. Music throughout the program is My Kruby by Kindswider and can be found at www.freemusicarchive.org.